Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Seat at the Table podcast. I'm your host, Bianca Heron, lead editor at HR Daily Advisor. This podcast focuses on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, featuring thoughtful conversations and insight from experts, change makers, and leaders from the business world. For today's episode, I'm super excited to be joined by Elizabeth Weingarten, Head of Behavioral Science Insights at Torch, a people development company fueling professional growth through coaching, mentoring, and collaborative learning. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Bianca. It's so great to be here. Absolutely. I appreciate you. I appreciate you and your time. Please tell me, what is your definition of having a seat at the table? I love this question, first of all. Um, and I love it because it, it really made me think for a second, because this is a metaphor that in some ways has almost become a little bit outdated, especially in our world of kind of hybrid and distributed work. Um, so I kind of was thinking, how often are we actually sitting around a table, you know, discussing an idea anymore, whether it's a seat at the table or an invitation to a Zoom meeting, I guess. To me, that's really about opening up an opportunity to influence a decision by sharing your perspective in the kind of most basic way. But, but, but there's also another element of it, which is a seat at the table is really only the first step. And I think it's a reminder that for underrepresented groups or for folks who have historically been excluded from these kind of tables or these meetings where big decisions are made, a seat at the table really in 2022 is table stakes. Because even if you have a seat at the table, that's no guarantee that you'll be listened to, right? Or that you'll be able to have the influence that you should on the conversation. So for me, your question kind of raises another question, which is what comes after a seat at the table, right? How do we make sure that we're paying attention to what happens after we invite others in? And and I think it's the difference in some ways between a culture that promotes representative diversity and one that actually promotes inclusion and belonging, where you're creating an environment where everyone's opinions and perspectives matter and and folks feel comfortable and are able to, to share them. You mentioned culture. So we know that COVID has forced a lot of changes in HR. In terms of culture, what has been one of the biggest lessons you've learned at Torch and your company or a strategy, if you will, to revamp that culture and make it work for the time now uh, and moving forward, of course? It's a, it's a great question. And I, I almost feel like it's important to kind of define culture up front because it's such a big term, right? So I really love how my colleague, um, Amy Lavoie, she's our VP of People Success, she defines culture as how we do things around here. And really, when I think about culture, I think about the way that me and everyone else you know, would behave inside an organization. And culture is this consists of shared values and beliefs that are established and then reinforced and communicated through systems, practices, processes, and policies. And together, all of these things are what shape our social norms and behaviors and perceptions. And one of the reasons, you know, my background is in behavioral science and uh, journalism. And one of the reasons that I like to define culture up front is that it also helps to help us start kind of understand how, how complex it is to change culture, right? Because um, there are so many elements of it. Um, and it also helps us understand why single interventions don't cut it, right? So when we think about kind of the big lesson, I think, um, of, of culture and culture change and, and influencing culture, I think the biggest thing for me is the importance of kind of holistic integrated strategies that look at 
systems, structures, processes, relationships across organizations. So, you know, for instance, if you think about um, ways to make a culture more inclusive or to create, you know, what's often been called coaching culture, um, the sole focus can't just be on a training, right? That's just about raising awareness or, you know, telling somebody that they have unconscious bias. We know from decades, really, of behavioral science research that just awareness or just this kind of single thing doesn't actually change behaviors and doesn't change cultures. And um, so I can, you know, go go way more into that. But I think that's maybe one of the biggest lessons is that, you know, it's some of these kind of simple interventions, like say, you know, you have a um, summer Fridays, or you, ha- you know, just a, a single thing isn't going to isn't going to change the whole culture. And it really has to be this kind of complex mix of, of solutions. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. And I think this is a great segue here for my next question, which you, you kind of gave us a little taste on here. Uh, but to delve in further, how can HR leaders and organizations rework their company culture to make it more inclusive and foster belonging? One of the big lessons we've learned from the past few years of really trying to, um, in many cases, make cultures more diverse, equitable, inclusive is that many forms of those interventions, specifically DEI trainings that are focused on compliance, um, aren't really working. It's not only that they're not making workplaces more inclusive, but oftentimes they're having a backlash, which of course I'm sure you you um, know well. I think one really important aspect of changing cultures is starting to actually center the needs of underrepresented groups. Um, that you know, when you're designing systems, structures, and policies, we know that this is a strategy that not only makes work life better for everyone, but will especially have an impact on those groups that you most want to support um, and make sure feel a sense of inclusion and belonging at work. I think one of the ways that diversity trainings have gone wrong is by kind of centering the needs of the majority, right? And saying, oh, well, you know, the vast majority of Um, white folks in this organization um, don't know all of these things about diversity or we have to teach about unconscious bias. And then it just neglects the the needs um, and kind of support structures that folks in underrepresented groups might need or want. Um, So there's just been kind of an imbalance, I think. And it hasn't been, um, I think it's been really well-meaning, well-intentioned, right? But I think the balance kind of needs to shift back in a lot of places. Absolutely, absolutely. And and so for that balance, where do you start? Where does an organization start there to get that balance? Does it go back to what you said of defining the culture? I think it I think it definitely goes to defining the culture first and defining kind of what are the values and, and beliefs that your organization um, that are core to your organization that you want to reward, that you wanna um, be enforcing through your systems and policies and processes. But then I think it also goes to um, really understanding what are the needs of the folks in your organization that are from underrepresented groups. Um, and and I think, you know, that's going to vary in every organization. And we really recommend um, doing some kind of a needs assessment or kind of establishing um, that understanding first before you start to develop any programs. But I think what we do know that um, many employees of all kinds want and need is access to professional development opportunities. Um, And in some cases, we're seeing research where people are saying access to those types of opportunities are more important than compensation, um, which is pretty interesting. Um, But 
it makes sense. I mean, these are opportunities that in many cases have historically been exclusive. So kind of reserved for certain levels or certain parts of an organization. Um, but more and more folks are saying that these are really important to them. And, you know, I think one of the types of opportunities that we know from research can have a really incredible impact on diversity, equity, and inclusion inside organizations are formalized mentoring programs. Because I think what we used to see is a lot of informal mentoring, right? Which is which is great, but a lot of times that would happen between people who looked like each other, right? And so you would have, you know, maybe people who looked a certain way and the higher levels of leadership mentoring people that looked like them um, lower down in the ranks. And you would have all of these people who were kind of left out of that process and left out of the kind of powerful way that that can completely change your career. Um, so mentoring programs are one kind of example of that. Coaching, like one-on-one -on -one coaching is another way that we saw, you know, that that's something that has historically been really kind of siloed in that executive suite. But I think we're seeing more and more people democratizing it, kind of expanding it out. And that being a really key way to, you know, not only coach managers on how to become more inclusive leaders, um, but also supporting folks in ERGs or, you know, new managers coming up and helping them really kind of take their leadership um, to the next level. Where do you see corporate culture headed and where would you like to see it go in my curveball here? If you don't like where you see it headed, what do you envision? First, I'll say I've only worked for a kind of corporate um, entity or a for-profit company for about a year now. Um, so I still feel like a little bit of a corporate culture tourist. Um, I'm coming from nonprofits and from media, but um, so far, um, yeah, so similar journalism uh, background. Um, I do see it evolving in, in three ways, but I would be really curious um, to hear what you think too and talking to everybody that you talk to. Um, so the first way that I see it evolving is becoming more inclusive and humane. I think the road is very, very long here and we are not at our destination. We may never be at our destination, but I do see so many more organizations working towards this and, and really taking it more seriously. And I think not only is there increasing recognition that more people should have development opportunities, for instance, inside organizations, but there's overall, I think, more investment in people's growth um, and a deeper understanding that your people are your greatest asset as a business. So again, I would say not every organization is, is there, but I see a lot more organizations really starting to fundamentally understand that and to address in a more serious way um, the issues that people are facing around, um, around well-being and, and kind of meeting that purpose and meaning and feeling like they're being invested in as, as humans. I also see culture becoming more experimental. So seeing a lot of behavioral scientists and kind of data scientists inside so many organizations now and encouraging folks to really experiment with new ideas and to take a more kind of scientific approach um, to innovation across the organization, including in HR, and really continuing to kind of evolve our understanding of what makes a culture truly inclusive. 
So, um, you know, I hear people sometimes getting frustrated with how quickly um, the language around DEI can be changing. And but but I think that's what makes it kind of exciting, actually, is that we are doing experiments. We're kind of learning new things all the time and we're deepening our understanding of what actually works um, to change, uh, change behaviors and change cultures. And finally, you know, and this is a tough one because I think Again, this is this is an area where I think there's a lot of room for growth, but where do I do see some progress? Um, I see culture becoming more conscious um, and really thinking about how are our actions, um, not just as individuals, but as organizations, impacting overall society. Um, and yes, as far as kind of sustainability and environmental impact goes, but also commitments to social justice. Um, and in some cases, again, you know, I think for some organizations, it's just been window dressing, right? But in other cases, I think there's been meaningful action. And I think, you know, it's easy to get, it's easy to get cynical about all of this and say, you know, it's not, uh, nothing's happening. But I think that there actually is a lot happening that's positive. Absolutely. And I, I love everything that you said, uh, an experimental culture, things becoming more humane, and, and, and people becoming more conscious as well. A lot of people that I've been chatting with on, on this podcast and one of the others that I host as well, those are the things that are top of mind for people. And like you said, it isn't everyone, right? It isn't every organization. Some some people, yes, there are unfortunate uh, window dressings, right? But I think that's the great thing about anything and anyone, because you can't do anything until you're ready. You know, you have to first accept, you know, you have to be aware uh, and most importantly, you have to be willing, you know, and if you're not any of those things, it isn't going to happen. But for those who are, for those who are ready to stand in the sun, you know, we're here. Totally, totally. We actually think about this and talk about it a lot in terms of this measurement of coaching readiness. So the basic idea is before somebody starts coaching, they have to respond to a question of, you know, do you really feel like you're, are you ready for this? Do you really want to be coached? Do you want to be challenged? Do you want to be, and, and it's such an important indicator of whether you're going to be successful, right? And it's, it seems so simple, right? But I think you're absolutely right for any type of change. You have to want it first. <laughs> you can't just go into it if you're kind of dragging your feet. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that is what, now, this is my jam right here, Elizabeth. I love talking about this. Th this is exactly uh, why I think, and, and a few other people have already chatted about uh, in pieces, if you will, uh, on this podcast, you have to kind of do a mind makeover, you know, like sh shifting that lens, shifting that perspective, because obviously everything that we thought we knew or wanted, that was not the case, you know, and it yeah. was not working. And while we may have had a little bit of an indication, uh, an indicator of that, excuse me, before COVID, COVID came and just blasted everything to smithereens, right? So absolutely, I, I really do think you have to have like a mind makeover and shift that lens, shift that perspective. And I think this is a great time, not only for um, employees, like we're seeing with the great resignation, you know, hey, I don't want to work. 40 hours a week, or I don't, I don't want to just be in the office. I want to travel and do all this. Uh, but it's also a great time for companies to reset, rethink, and bleed out the lines and quite frankly, be anything that they want. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I agree. I agree. And I love that. I mean, what you're talking about, that kind of mindset shift, that's such an important aspect of you know how we think about behavior change. We think about kind of mindsets and habits and these kind of 
um, ways that you can kind of slowly move yourself to the person that you want to be or the person that you want to become. But I love the mindset shift you're talking about um, from thinking about almost the, you know, the kind of downsides of the past few years to thinking about the opportunity. Um, and how do we kind of think about this as a as a moment um, for change and an exciting change, not a like, oh, well, we have to do this, but we get to do this, right? Yes, absolutely. I love that. Actually, I think this is important too. This new wave, again, where you mentioned that uh, humane component here, for the first time in the workplace, and I'm a millennial, uh, I'm only 34. Same. Same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know that isn't a lot of time here, right? But it's enough. And uh, I've been in a few corporate settings as a writer, uh, as a tech writer, and in nonprofit space as well uh, for, for a little bit more than a decade now in my career. And this is the first time ever. I've ever heard people talk this much about and talk it all about being kind, being genuine, mm, uh, reciprocity, yeah. listening. And it's like, wow, totally. we're, we're all human. hundred percent. And you know, I love that you brought that up because it, it does make me think of another thing that I'm really seeing. Um, and I would say, and I think this was, this existed before COVID, but we're really seeing it now too, which is this hunger for connection, right? I think so many people, so many researchers have documented our society becoming more isolated and kind of fragmented for, for decades. Um, and more recently, we've talked about kind of this loneliness epidemic. But what I see are people hungrier than ever for connections at work that feel more human, um, less transactional. Yes. And I think a really interesting data point around this is researchers have shown that our professional networks shrunk by 16% during the pandemic, which is like almost 200 people, um, which is a lot of people. And I don't know about you, but as a knowledge worker who is privileged enough to work from home most of the time, I sometimes end the day just feeling kind of empty. Um, and that's not because I don't enjoy the work that I do, but it's often because I just didn't take enough time that day to genuinely connect with the people that I, that I meet with, Absolutely. you know, it's easy to just kind of rush through our agenda because we're busy. But I think in a lot of cases, we aren't really taking the time to understand each other as human beings. And, um, you know, if we aren't building this into our days, it can have all sorts of negative impacts on sense of meaning and purpose and motivation and belonging at work. Um, so relationships and real relationships at work are, are incredibly important, but but all too easy to ignore, right? If you're not with that person and you're just kind of connecting um, over digital forums. Absolutely. And a, and a great point there too. I think oftentimes people think that if you're around a bunch of people, how can you be lonely? But loneliness, excuse me, I'm getting excited, isn't the absence of other people. You can be around other people, obviously, and be lonely. Loneliness is the absence of connection. And we really have to start that's another one, shifting the lens there, right? Shifting that mindset, yeah. shifting that perspective and taking it from a different angle. Because like you said, you connect all day with people and I do as well, but there is honestly a bit of a connection that is lost at the end of the day, because you're kind of just going through the motions of everything. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but again, uh, we're working from home. We're all in silos, you know, happy hour isn't for everyone. Virtually. So what other ways can we connect with employees and our managers and, you know, yada, yada, yada. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And then when kind of going back to this conversation about creating inclusive cultures, I think one of the biggest ways to do that is through connection, right? Is through kind of meeting people that are not the same as you, that are not maybe even on your immediate team and fundamentally kind of sharing stories with people and and getting to know them, um, who they actually are. But obviously those are all things that, that take intention. And I think part of what you're saying, it's not this passive thing. It's, it's a really active thing. It's a thing we have to invest in and take the time to do. Absolutely. I love that. And of course, tying back to you, you got to be ready. You have to be willing. And it's that intention as well. My final question for you, Elizabeth, what's on your heart? Oh, I love that question. What's on my heart? Hmm. You know, I think I'm, I'm just coming off of a weekend um, spent with some friends um, at a beach. Um, I live in Northern California. Um, so we were all up there together. And uh, it was just reflecting just gratitude um, of, of getting to spend time with people in person and be out in nature, just simple things, nothing, nothing too, nothing too deep there. But, you know, I, I don't think it doesn't take much, um, you know, and I think it's doing things like that makes you remember just how profound it can be to spend a day with friends um, on the beach, right? It's, it's just a, um, a simple pleasure that um, I think I spent a lot of time taking that for granted, but have vowed to not do that anymore. I love that. I love that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, Elizabeth, I appreciate you taking the time and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bianca. I enjoyed it too. Absolutely. Absolutely. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in today. And remember, you can listen to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Again, I'm Bianca Heron. Join us next time at the table. And as always, we'll have your seat waiting for you.